If you would open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14 is our text for today. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. The title of our message is Sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. I'm going to read from God's Word. You follow along in your copy, and this is the Word of God. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Church, we are guaranteed things all the time. Just think about it. We're guaranteed that a certain pillow will help us sleep better than we've ever slept before. We're guaranteed that a certain workout will cause us to lose weight faster than we've ever lost it before. If only it would say that once you do it a little bit, then you wouldn't have to do it anymore and it would just stay off, right? That would be a nice one. Or we're guaranteed that a supplement is going to give us more energy than we've ever had before. Or that a a certain shampoo is going to make our hair grow healthier than it ever has before. Of course, you got to have hair if your hair is going to grow healthy. Um, A certain detergent is going to remove those toughest stains. The stains that have never been able to be removed before are guaranteed this detergent will get them out of there. Or that a certain toothpaste is going to prevent cavities and plaque buildup and all that other stuff that happens in our mouths. You'll, I mean, you, you listen to it, you think you never have, have to go to the dentist, your teeth are going to last for, for 100 years. Um, we're guaranteed things all the time. And many times the guarantee is backed up by another guarantee that you can get your money back if you're not completely satisfied with that product. In other words, the company guarantees to refund your money if their product fails up, fails to live up to the original guarantee. How about that, right? We're going to guarantee this, but if it doesn't work, then we'll guarantee that we'll give you your money back. My point is this. We like guarantees. That's why all these commercials guarantee us things, because they know that we like to be guaranteed. Now, why is that? Why do we like guarantees? It's because that a guarantee replaces worry with confidence. A guarantee replaces worry with confidence. If I'm confident that something is going to do what it says it will do, then I'm going to enjoy purchasing it and using it rather than worrying over it. Now, of course, and you're probably already thinking this, the guarantee is only as good as the one who is making the guarantee. For instance, if I rebuild the engine in your car and then guarantee that it will run, you better be worried the whole time that you are driving down the road. Why? Because I'm not a mechanic. I don't work on engines, much less rebuild them. Don't know what I'm doing. And so my guarantee to you is completely, absolutely worthless in that regard. Church, the greatest thing we can have in all of life comes with the greatest guarantee in all of life. And it is a guarantee that ought to produce not the worry that me working on your car engine would produce. It would produce the opposite. It ought to produce the greatest confidence, a perfect confidence, because this guarantee is backed by God himself, who is sovereign over all. Now, what is it that we can have that is guaranteed by God himself? 
It is none other than an inheritance of eternal salvation blessings. Church, God provides us with salvation, and the salvation that He provides is guaranteed. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14 is the final part of this long opening sentence in the main body of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This long sentence begins in verse 3, and we've seen it goes all the way through what we just read, verse 14. It's one long breath of praise to God. In verse 3, to remind us, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so God is to be blessed because He has blessed us with salvation blessings. Namely, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so we are to praise God for His blessing of salvation. But how? How is it that we who are born rebels, and it's so important that we continually remind ourselves of that, that we who are born rebels against God, how is it that we could say that we have been blessed with such a great blessing by the Holy God? And even more, as we're going to say today, that we've been guaranteed this. Like, how, how is that possible? The first reason Paul gave was that God has chosen us for salvation. If you'll glance your eyes back to verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so we spent a couple of weeks learning that we are to praise God for choosing us for salvation. And then the second reason he gave there in verse 7 is that God has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. Verse 7 starts, in Him. It's a very important word, in a phrase, in Him. We have redemption through his blood. So that was the second reason. And last week we studied verses 7 through 10 and learned to praise God for redeeming us for salvation. Now, Paul gives in the structure of this long sentence two more reasons why we are to praise God for salvation. Or how we can confidently praise him for blessing us with salvation, even though we are by nature children of his wrath. Verse 11 says, in him, you see that phrase again, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. And then if you'll skip ahead a verse to verse 13 and going into verse 14, again you see the words, in him. In him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so, verse 11 through 14, we have these two in him statements. The first is verse 11 and 12, second is verse 13 and 14. And these in him statements speak to the guaranteed nature of our salvation. So as we remember then that the main point of verses 3 through 14 is to lead us to praise God for salvation blessings, we can say that the main point of verses 11 through 14 is to teach us to praise God for giving us a guaranteed inheritance. Or another way we could say that is focus in on that word, glorious word, sealed, which we'll look at in just a few minutes, is to say this, that we are to praise God for sealing us for salvation. We praise God for choosing us for salvation. We praise God for redeeming us for salvation. And today we learn that we are to praise God for sealing us for salvation. Christian, have you ever doubted your salvation? Has that ever happened to you before? Have you ever had that question in your mind? Have you ever wondered if perhaps God has removed His love from you? Probably most of us would have to answer yes at some point or another. Maybe in a small way or maybe we've gone through a a, a lengthy season of doubt. In our lives, we've talked about the blessing of God choosing us and how the result of that was God adopting us into his family. But do you ever wonder if God might kick you out of his family after he's adopted you into his family? We've seen how God sent his son to pay the redemption price for our sin. Jesus came and he poured out his blood on the cross so that God's wrath would be satisfied and we would be forgiven. But do you ever wonder if God might take that redemption 
away from you? Brothers and sisters, let me give you a very short answer to that. And that answer is no. God will never take away the redemption that he gives to us. God will never kick us out of his family after he has adopted us into his family. The salvation that God graciously blesses us with is a guaranteed salvation. Now, I want to share with you two truths today from this passage that I pray will grow you in a humble confidence in your salvation to the praise of God's glory. Truth number one comes from the first in him statement, which is verses 11 through 12. How is it that we can have confidence that the salvation inheritance we have in Christ is guaranteed? Number one, we have a guaranteed inheritance because God has predestined us for it. We have a guaranteed inheritance because God has predestined us for it. Now, you might be thinking, haven't we already talked about the electing and predestining purposes of God when it comes to salvation? Isn't that what verses four through six was about? And yeah, you're right. We have already talked about it in some detail, but apparently God wants us to talk about it again because he inspired Paul to lead the Ephesians to consider this truth once again. Look at verses 11 through 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I want to make a couple of observations that should lead us to humble confidence and to humble praise. First, the in him, remember, is referring back to Christ. The it, you could say in Christ. Verse 10, it says that we're to unite, uh, that God is uniting all things in Christ. And so the in him of verse 11 is referring back to the in Christ of verse 10. So we know it's talking about in Jesus. Next, I want you to notice the certainty. It's not that we might obtain this inheritance. It's not that we wish for an inheritance. The grammar of this word in the Greek means that it has already happened and it is done to us, not by us. In other words, in Christ, we have already come to obtain this inheritance by the work of God. And so we can confidently bless God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because in Christ, according to verse 11, we have obtained, we have already obtained this inheritance. It is ours. And we bless God for this obtaining of, of, these, of this inheritance because God's the one who did it. It's done to us, not by us. He has caused us to gain this inheritance. Now, how has he caused it? Look at the rest of verse 11. He predestined us for it. And he is at work to ensure that we gain it. He predestined us for it. And he is at work to ensure that we gain it. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this sounds a lot like what Paul said back in verses four through six, where we learned that the foundation of salvation was God's sovereign choice of us for salvation. And here we see how that truth Actually, this is one of the reasons we spent a couple of weeks in verses four through six. It's so important. It, it has implications all throughout the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice of us in salvation serves as the bedrock for our confidence in salvation. Or we could say the doctrine of the security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints. Brothers and sisters, the only way we can have a salvation that is completely sure, secure, that it cannot be lost, that ensures a salvation that we will persevere to the end. The only way we can have that is if it is grounded in the sovereign will of God. Think about it. Our will is fickle. That means that it changes. We we don't know from one day to the next really what our will is going to do. 
Sometimes we surprise ourselves by the choices that we make, the wrong choices that we make. Our will is untrustworthy. Our will shifts and stumbles. Our will is easily tempted and swayed, but not God's will. If salvation begins with the sovereign will of God and is accomplished by the sovereign will of God, then it is a guaranteed salvation. And only then is it a guaranteed salvation. And that's exactly what verse 11 teaches. Salvation begins with God predestining us according to his purpose. And then it is carried out by God who sovereignly works. This is an incredible statement. Sovereignly works all things according to the counsel of his will. That that means that he's sovereignly working right now and always in the midst of this broken world to accomplish everything that he set out to do before he ever even created the world. I mean, that's how big and sovereign our God is. That word counsel there, the counsel of his will, it, it, it reveals that God has what he has willed to do. He's carefully considered the counsel. It's almost like the, you could say the deliberation that this counsel, he he's it's not a rash thought that God made. All of the all of his plans of salvation didn't just come like, oh, I think I'll do this just without thinking. Sometimes we do that. We act spon- spontaneously. We don't think about our actions. We do, we do that probably more often than we like to admit, not God. He is deliberated with himself, carefully thought through all that he planned to do. So so think about it this way. The God who, before the foundation of the world, carefully thought through our salvation and then decided to accomplish it, and who has been and is currently, and who continues to be actively at work, will continue to do that in the world to ensure that his predetermined plan is accomplished. He is the foundation of our salvation. And so it is a salvation. It is an inheritance which we can have and enjoy with a confidence. Hear this with a confidence that it will never be lost. And this confidence is a humble confidence. It's a humble confidence. When I say confident, I don't mean arrogant. It's a humble confidence because we see how it depends completely upon God and his will to show sinners mercy, not our will to earn God's favor and love. We could say it this way. God's predestination of us produces a humble confidence because it is based on the will of God who is sovereignly working all things to the end that he has carefully chosen. Think about what um, what the, God said through the prophet Isaiah. One of my favorite places in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. You, you're probably familiar with this uh, part of Isaiah. For as the rain, God says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Church, before God created the world, he predestined, he decreed that he would give us an inheritance and God always succeeds in what he decrees. He always succeeds in what he decrees. And so if he has decreed our inheritance before the foundation of the world, you can guarantee um, you are guaranteed that he will be successful in ensuring that we receive that glorious inheritance. God's predestination of us doesn't just produce humble confidence. It also produces humble praise. Look at verse 12. 
so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he, he predestined us for this inheritance that's going to be completely accomplished by him working all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The second time that we've seen this phrase in this long sentence to the praise of his glory. First time was back in verse six. And we actually see it two times in our passage for today. Church, God's predestination of us produces humble praise because note what verse 12 says. Christ is our only hope. We who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To hope in Christ first means that you are choosing to place no hope, no confidence in yourself or anyone else or anything else to provide you with the salvation, with the inheritance that you need. And second, then it means if you're not placing any hope, any confidence in yourself or anyone else, it means that you then are placing all of your hope, all of your confidence in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that nothing, no one but God in Christ gets all the praise and the glory. So that's the first reason why we can have confidence that the inheritance we have in Christ is guaranteed. We have a guaranteed inheritance because God has predestined us for it. And remember, what he decrees, he succeeds in accomplishing. Now, here's the second reason. Truth number two. We have a guaranteed inheritance because God has sealed us for it. We have a guaranteed inheritance because God has sealed us for it. We have the final in him statement in this passage in verses 13 and 14. You turn your eyes there. Verse uh, 13 begins with that in him. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, I'll go ahead and say a, probably a better way to translate that is until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, the main action here is the word sealed. And just like the word translated obtained an inheritance, the word sealed, its grammar reveals that it is something that God has done to us. It's this completed action and that God has done. It's not us doing the action, the action is being done to us. We're passive in this sealing. God does it. In him, you were sealed. And that word sealed in the context of these verses, church, is one of the most, I think, encouraging and hope-filled words in all of the Bible. Church, not only has God predestined us for the inheritance of salvation, but he has sealed us for the inheritance of salvation. What does that mean to be sealed? To be sealed means to have the mark of God's ownership placed upon us. Isn't that incredible? The God of the universe would place his mark of ownership upon us. We kind of see that really kind of going back to last week with that idea of, uh, of redemption, right? That God sets us free. He purchases us to, us to belong to himself. In a way, it's kind of like being branded, if you will. You know, the brand that cows have that shows who the cow belongs to. You know who the cow belongs to, right, because of the brand that's on the cow. There's a scene in, a, in an older movie uh, where a poor man is getting ready to feed his guests some beef. Now, he's a very poor man, okay, and he, he's got some, some high-quality beef that he's getting ready to feed a guest that has shown up at his house. Now, the man's, the, the, the uh, poor man's, brother was a wealthy cattle rancher and their last name started with an h 
I think it was Harrison. I can't remember. But the last name started with an H. These brothers had had a feud years before, and they hadn't spoken to one another in years. And the poor brother lived in a shack up in the mountains above the kind of valley where his wealthy brother's cattle ranch uh, was. Now, sometimes those cows would wander around, and they would make their way up into the mountains. And so the poor brother's there, and he has got this guest, and he says, we're, you know, we're going to eat good. And he pulls back the curtain in his little shack, and there hangs a nice cow ready to be butchered. The hide's still on it, okay, but it's ready to be butchered. And the guest, who is familiar with the surrounding countryside, and there's a cattle ranch down below, uh, looks at that cow, and he kind of acknowledges that there's this big H branded on the side of that cow and he kind of motions like what's what's that and the poor man without missing a beat he says oh that means homeless (laughs) so so he had claimed it for himself not harrison but homeless christian we already learned in verse five that our identity has been transformed in christ god has adopted us into his family he has branded us as his own and his brand hear this his seal guarantees that though we are prone to wonder his grace will never let us go and it will most assuredly always lead us home God is too sovereign. He's paid too high a price and his glory is too praiseworthy for him to lose that which he has purchased as his own. I want to make four observations in verses 13 through 14. I want us to think about the timing of the seal, the substance of the seal, the endurance of the seal and the purpose of the seal. So the timing, substance, endurance and purpose. First, we see the timing. When is it that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit? We are sealed when we believe in Jesus. We're sealed when we believe in Jesus. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. Now Paul tells the Ephesians that they can be confident that they're included in these salvation blessings because they have heard the gospel message, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and they responded to the gospel with belief or faith in Jesus. Do you want to know that you have confidence in your salvation? Have you heard the gospel and have you believed in Jesus? If you're wondering today how to be saved, if you're wondering how to be sealed by God for a guaranteed inheritance, this is how. Hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. The gospel is simply the good news that God has provided a solution to our problem of sin. Our sin separates us from the holy God and so we deserve God's wrath. But out of his great love and mercy, God sent his only son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to die a sinner's death that we should have died. He did that in our place. He took our sin upon him on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God upon him, that wrath that we deserve. And then Jesus, having died for our sins, you know, rose up from the dead, right? Gloriously resurrected from the dead, which means he has the power to rescue everyone who believes in him from sin and Satan and death, which means that everyone who believes in Jesus will be rescued, will be saved, will be sealed. It's when we believe in Jesus that we are saved. It's when we believe in Jesus that we are sealed, but only when we believe in Jesus. So I'm going to just kind of ask you right now, do you need to believe in Jesus? Are you here today lost in your sin, needing to believe in Jesus, needing God to brand you as his own? So then I would encourage you, I would plead with you, believe right now, right now, agree with God that you are a sinner. Thank God for his amazing grace and love and sending Jesus to die for your sin and then believe that Jesus is enough. 
trust completely depend upon Christ. Stop hoping in anyone or anything else in your good works or anything else. You trust completely in Jesus Christ to save you and you receive his free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. And that's how we are sealed for this eternal inheritance. And it's the only way that we can be sealed for this eternal inheritance. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago that there was another aspect of the doctrine of election that I wanted to talk about, but I decided to save it for verses 11 through 14. And so I want to share that with you. This may seem like a little bit of a digression, but actually it goes right along with this passage of Scripture. You know, when we think about, and we just talked about in, in point number one, truth number one, that God predestines us for salvation. Verse 5 teaches that. Verse 11 teaches that. Um, back to verse 4. Um, we may ask this question, and we should ask this question, where does faith fit into the doctrine of election? If God chooses us before the foundation of the world, then is faith even necessary? In other words, what is the relationship between the human choice to believe in Jesus and God choosing us for salvation? We often would refer to that as the sovereignty of God over salvation, his choice of us and human responsibility. That is, we are responsible then to choose to believe in Jesus. How do those things go together? God's word. Let me start with this statement. God's word teaches both God's sovereignty and and human responsibility as equally true when it comes to our salvation. Now, one happens before the other, one rules over the other, but as far as being true, they are equally true. They are both true. We could say it this way. These statements, these two statements are both true. Only those whom God chooses for salvation will be saved. And here's the second statement. We must choose to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Both of those things are true. Now, to our finite mind, those two claims may seem to stand in opposition to one another. It may seem like one could be true, but not the other. This could be true, but not this one, or this one could be true, but not this one. In other words, we often wrestle with that and say, well, either God chooses us or we choose him. It can't be both. But in God's mind, those two claims are not merely claims. They are truths. And rather than stand opposed to one another, they're actually working together, kind of like spokes on a wheel. They're actually working together in accomplishing salvation. They're both equally necessary in God's salvation plan. And that means that we must believe that God chooses people for salvation. And at the same time, we must believe that people are only saved if they choose to believe in Jesus, respond to the gospel with faith in Christ for salvation. I mean, this is why I say it's not really a, di- a digression, why I saved it for these verses. In the very same breath, in these particular verses, verses 11 through 14, God's word says that those who are saved are both those whom God has predestined and those who have responded to the gospel with faith in Jesus. If we're struggling with that or wrestling with that, which is okay if we do because it's hard to understand, Let me give you two examples of people in Scripture who believed both in God's sovereignty and human responsibility when it comes to salvation. In other words, they they believed that both God chose people for salvation and that a human choice to have faith in Jesus, both are absolutely necessary for salvation. First, case in point is the Apostle Paul, the one who's writing this letter. Paul teaches the doctrine of election in this letter, all throughout his letters. We've seen it very clearly here in these opening verses of Ephesians. At the very same time, 
The Apostle Paul gave his life. He's literally in prison right now while he's writing this, and he's in prison for preaching the gospel to people. He gave his life to sharing the gospel with everyone so that everyone would have an opportunity to believe in Jesus for salvation because he knew that even though God chose people for salvation, the only way that people would be saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit is if they heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. He said in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul did, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet he's the same one here that says that God chose us for salvation before the foundation of the earth, that he predestined us for adoption, that he predestined us to receive this inheritance according to the purpose of him, works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul believed both. And these truths led him to and should lead us to confidently spend our lives proclaiming to people the good news of salvation, knowing that there's a guaranteed inheritance because it's based on the sovereign will of God awaiting everyone who would choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. And so we look to the Apostle Paul for an example. But let me give you another example of someone who believed both of these truths to be equally true. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus believed in God's sovereignty over salvation. He had called people to make the choice to believe in him, to follow after him. For instance, Jesus told his disciples this. You did not choose me. I chose you. That's John chapter 15, verse 16. And yet Jesus gave them the choice of whether or not they would follow him and keep following him. When some people stopped following him, he turned to his disciples. And you know what Jesus said? He said, well, if you if if you wanted to leave, you know, but you can't because I already chose. He didn't say that. He said, do you want to go too? Do you want to, do you want to go with them? The choice is yours. And yet he, he was the same one. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But he also says, do you want to keep following me or not? He put the ball back in their court. On the same day, here's another example from the life of Jesus. On the same day, in the same sermon or discussion, it was kind of a sermon in a synagogue, but there were some questions and a back and forth kind of sermon discussion, if you will. Jesus made these following statements. These are found in John chapter 6. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, sent me draws him. John six forty four, And no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John six sixty five. And yet, so that's God's sovereignty and salvation. And yet he said in between those two statements in John chapter six, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. So Jesus taught God's sovereignty over salvation and that humans have a responsibility to believe in him for salvation. So we should believe both as well. Now, sometimes what we are tempted to do is to pick one of these truths over the other or to emphasize one while sometimes, if we're honest, doing our best to neglect the other. As if these are competing truths and we're trying to pick sides. We've got to pick sides in it. But church, God's electing purposes and the necessity of faith in Jesus for salvation are not competing truths. They are both biblical truths. I used to speak um, about these truths as I was thinking about them. I used to speak about them as truths that we had to hold in tension with one another. And that can be helpful uh, terminology if... I'm thinking like if I start emphasizing one, then I need to remember the other to kind of draw me back. But but actually, I think it can be very dangerous to say that we need to hold these truths in tension with one another. The word tension implies pulling in opposite directions. But that's not at all what these two aspects of God's salvation plan are doing. They're not pulling against one another, but they're working together. It's not like they're holding on to two sides of a rope in a tug of war match and they're both pulling against one another. These truths are on the same side of the rope. They're on the same team working together to accomplish God's plan of salvation for you and for me, for all who would believe in Jesus. 
In fact, they're so connected that if we neglect one in favor of the other, we'll end up misunderstanding and misapplying the one that we're trying to hold tightly to. So again, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not at odds with one another, and so we don't need to try to reconcile these two truths with one another. As the great Baptist pastor in London, Charles Spurgeon, said when asked if he could reconcile the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility for salvation, he said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Let me give you one illustration that I've found to be extremely helpful in thinking through this hard-to-understand part of our salvation, and then we'll move on. Um, but it's a very simple illustration, and, and it has helped me so much. I just want to share it with you. Um, I heard a pastor tell the story of him of his, his testimony of coming to faith in Jesus, and, and he trusted in Jesus, but he had these questions. He's like, man, I read in the Bible that God chose me for salvation, but I have to choose in God to choose Jesus. To, so how does that work together? And, and as he trusted in Christ for salvation, um, he, he went to a... Uh, another pastor who was older than him, and he said, look, you've got to help me understand this. I don't, I don't get this. It's hard to understand. And here's what that pastor said. I think it's so helpful. That pastor said to this other pastor, he said, salvation is like a door. He said, when you are lost and you hear the gospel, the door of salvation stands before you, and you see these words written above it, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you believe in Jesus. You choose to to place your faith in Jesus for salvation and God saves you. You walk through that door of salvation as you walk through that door of salvation that said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You walk through and if you walk through, you turn around, you look up at the same door and written above it. It says chosen before the foundation of the world. The point is this. No one is saved apart from choosing to believe in Jesus for salvation. And everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved from their sin. There's not one person in all the world who wants to believe in Jesus for salvation that God won't save. And at the same time, all who are saved, all who believe in Jesus must give God all the glory for the only explanation that they came to place their faith in Jesus is that God chose them before the foundation of the world. It's the same door of salvation. Same truth, two truths working in the same plan of salvation. Is this easy to understand? No. If you're shaking your head, yes, stop. <laughs> don't, don't shake your head, yes. It's not easy to understand. It shouldn't be easy for humans to understand the mind of God. Are all of our questions answered when it comes to this? No. But that's okay. God has revealed to us all that we need to know in order to lead us to believe in Jesus and then to glorify him as the one responsible for our salvation. Does it feel sometimes like your mind is being overwhelmed as you consider these truths of God? Yeah, it's so good. Good. You say, you want me to feel overwhelmed? I do kind of. I want I want to feel overwhelmed. Here's why. Because that sense of feeling feeling overwhelmed by the truths of God coupled with faith in God leads us to humbly praise God, which is the point of all of this. So faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation for only when we believe in Jesus are we sealed. Now, spend a good bit of time on that first observation. I'm going to give you the last three fairly, fairly quickly. No, uh, se- uh, second observation as we think about the sealing of the spirit, the substance of the seal. What is it that seals us? What is it that brands us? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. I said in our overview of this passage several weeks ago that one of the awesome things about this description of salvation is how we see all three persons of the triune God at work in our salvation. We see the Father choosing, the Son dying to redeem, and the Spirit sealing to guarantee. 
In the Old Testament, God promised to send his spirit in a new way in connection with the coming Messiah. And then when Jesus came, the Messiah, he promised that when he ascended back to the father, that he would send the Holy Spirit to take his place. And God made good on that promise. He's still making good on that promise today. Everyone who believes in Jesus is given the promised Holy Spirit. Listen, there's not some people who are saved and don't have the spirit and other people who are saved and do have the spirit. There's people that believe that, that you can be saved and not have the spirit. And sometime later, something has to happen for you to get the spirit. That's not that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that if you're saved, you have the spirit to have to have Christ is to have his spirit in you. You can't have the spirit of God not in you, but at the same time, be united to Jesus. And so if you have Receive salvation, then you have the promised Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to seal our salvation. Again, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is to seal? Well, look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee of our inheritance. Another way to say that, you might have this in your translation, you might have it in a footnote, is to say the down payment of our inheritance or the first installment of our inheritance. Now, this picture is fairly easy to understand. God has purchased us for salvation through the blood of his son. We saw that in verse 7. He's purchased us to belong to him. He's, he's put this seal, this mark of ownership on us. But our salvation is not yet complete. It's not that God has like done part of it. He doesn't know what else to do. It's just that in his sovereign plan of salvation, it, it's not complete yet once we've trusted in Christ. He's still at work in us, and it won't be completed until, remember what verse 10 said, all things are united in Christ. But God has put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. You know, you've heard that saying, right? You put your money where your mouth is. God, God has done that in a way. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but it kind of helps me think about it. He's gone ahead and given us his spirit. None other than the, 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 the spirit of God. I mean, God himself, he's given us that as a down payment to guarantee that he will finish what he started. Now, let me go ahead and give you the third observation, and I'll say something about both of these because they go together. The third observation has to do with the endurance. How long will the seal last? Well, we are sealed, the text says, until the final redemption. Until the final redemption. Remember I said that probably the best way to translate that um, next to the last phrase in verse 14 is until the redemption of the possession. Until the redemption of the possession. Now, redemption means to be set free. The possession is most likely the fact that God owns us. We are his possession. Now, you might be thinking, well, Zach, I I thought that we said last week, verse 7, that God has redeemed us. So how then are we saying until the redemption? I thought the redemption, in a way, happened at the cross when Jesus died uh, for our sins. Well, you're right. It did happen then, and it's going to happen one day. This is what we call the already but not yet of our salvation. The already but not yet. The reality is that even though we have received an inheritance, we have not yet fully experienced that inheritance. Yes, God has adopted us so that Satan is no longer our father. God is our father, but Satan, our old father, still tempts us. Yes, God has purchased uh, our redemption so that we are set free from the power of sin, but we have not yet been set free from the presence of sin in our lives. In other words, there is more to come in God saving us. It is a work that God is still completing, and one day it's guaranteed he will complete it. The Bible refers to this as the day of redemption. On that day, Satan will no longer tempt us, and the presence of sin will no longer plague us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. Now, the temptation, here's where we go back to those questions I asked early on. The temptation is while we wait, we might begin to think that God has stopped saving us. We might think 
that God has somehow removed his love from us, that he's removed his grace from us, that he may have pushed us out of his family after he adopted us in. But please hear me. The beauty of this passage, the beauty of the doctrine of salvation and the security of our salvation in Christ is that we don't ever have to fear God stopping what he has started because God has given us a down payment on his word to finish what he started. And that down payment is none other than himself. He has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us. In other words, to ensure that he will make good on his promise to bring us into his presence one day where we will enjoy the fullness of the blessing of salvation forever. He has given us his presence to live with us now. It's like a down payment on a house. It's not merely a promise to pay, which it is, but it's more than that. It is actually part of the payment. He's already letting us enjoy a little bit of what we're going to get to enjoy in the fullness of his presence one day, that day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is not merely a pledge that God's going to do one day what he said, but it's actually a part of him already completing his promise. To paraphrase one theologian, God has given us a piece of heaven to guarantee our place in heaven one day. The seal is the Spirit of God, and the seal will endure until that future day of redemption. Final observation as we close, and that is the purpose of the sealing. You should see this one coming. It's right there in the text. It's what the whole point of verse 3 through 14 is. What is the purpose? Church, we are sealed for the praise of God's glory. Church, God seals our salvation, not because we deserve it, not to puff us up with pride, not to make us look down on others. He seals us with salvation because to not finish what he started, to not accomplish what he predestined to accomplish would diminish his glory. It would be to say, God didn't have the power to to finish what he started. God wasn't able to do it. Something's wrong there with God. He promised to do something that he couldn't do. But God is God and he will get all the glory. He will overcome whatever obstacles he must overcome in order to do what he said he would do. He will overcome our sin. He will overcome our doubts. He will overcome our wondering. He will overcome Satan's schemes against us. Brothers and sisters, assurance of salvation should bring peace into our lives. It ought to eliminate worry as we are guaranteed salvation. If we are believing in Jesus for salvation, then we can know that our salvation, our eternity, our inheritance is secure. But it's not ultimately for us. It is ultimately for him. It's God's glory that salvation is meant to magnify It's God's glory that when we are sealed, we magnify. So let's allow our confidence in salvation to lead us to praise Him with the praise and honor that He is worthy of. Church, the God who chose us in Christ. The God who redeemed us in Christ with the blood of Christ. And the God who sealed us in Christ with His Holy Spirit. He is worthy of glory. Every moment of our lives and every choice that we make, He is worthy of glory. So will we not just say that we praise Him, but will we live to the praise of His glory? Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for the guarantee of salvation. Truly, God, we are not worthy of it. Lord, if there's someone here today who has not believed in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would draw their heart to faith in Christ and they would be saved. 
Father, for those who have trusted in Jesus, Lord, may we live with confidence in our salvation. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in your word that you have guaranteed, that you have given us your spirit. Nothing in all the world can take away the salvation that you have so graciously given to us. Father, may it all lead us to praise you. May we praise you together through song. May we praise you through our humility before you. May we praise you by running away from sin and running into the holiness that you have purchased us for. God, may we praise you by telling others the good news that if they will believe in Jesus, they too can be saved and sealed forever. Lord, may we live to the praise of your glory because you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.